For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. So we've been working our way through this book of John, and we've been kind of doing the whole time is just trying to keep in focus that we're reading a biography of God come to dwell among us, which is the best opportunity. It's, it's, it's a unique and powerful way for trying to understand who God is. God in a human context, God in everyday situations, looking at how he responds to suffering. For example, the way that Jesus moves towards people who are hurting and wants to help them. How he prioritizes relationship, connectedness, love. That these things are more important than outward rituals. That our relationship with God and our relationship with each other in a very personal way are the things that God values most. And now we're moving into sort of the last third of the book where we're going to see it condenses into a very short period of time. Starting in chapter 13, it covers uh, really the last few days of Jesus' earthly ministry and begin to see how God responds when he is personally suffering, which is quite a remarkable thing. We've talked about how Jesus is facing this unimaginable suffering. That, you know, as he is moving towards Jerusalem, as he is coming in, it's the Passover season, and he has begun to tell his disciples, my hour has come, I must come and die for the sins of man. And we really have no category for what that means, that he would come and undergo humiliation, mockery, betrayal, a beating, And then crucifixion, one of the most diabolical ways, painful and horrible ways of killing somebody ever devised by the creative mind of man. But that way more than all of that, that he would also be undergoing judgment. That the judgment, the wrath of God for all people for all time would be poured out upon him in a moment, in an instant. No suffering No pain, no separation, nothing that we will ever experience or that any human being could ever experience would be like what Jesus knows that he's he's headed straight for. The most terrifying, horrible experience that there ever was or ever would be is what he's facing on top of all the other physical pains that he would be going through. And he's willingly moving towards it. Now, he's not an ascetic. What I mean is, he's not somebody that believed that, you know, you have have to inflict pain on your body and that that makes God happy or that that makes you a better person somehow. He is counting the cost. He's looking at the highest price that could ever be paid, and he's deciding the outcome of this is worth it. I'm willing to walk into the buzzsaw because of the results of what will happen because of my willingness to do this. He's going to die for the sins of mankind so that all of us can be renewed into a right relationship with God. And it is a price that he's willing to pay. But imagine the days leading up to that. You know, you would definitely be counting them down. 
each day is a closer day to this incredible, unimaginable thing. And so the impact that that has on him, I don't know about you, but when I know that, you know, something hard or something painful, I get very selfish, you know, especially if I'm doing something very hard and very painful for others, I would like to, you know, coast into that, seeing a little appreciation on their part, right? I've got this big thing coming up, this big trial, this big um, hardship that's going to benefit my friends or my family in some way, and I want to see, I want to know that uh, they appreciate it. And it's very easy to go into a self-centered kind of pity party of thinking about and obsessing over what you're going to go through and then putting the expectations on everybody else that they're going to serve you and comfort you given what you're about to do. That's what could be more human than that. But that's not what God is like. That's not what's in his heart. As he moves towards this, he sees it as an opportunity to model suffering for us. That the other-centered perspective, looking at others, loving others, being concerned about the needs of others, is never more important than when you're suffering yourself as a demonstration of God's character and who he is. Right before our passage that we're going to be focused on this, on this morning, in John 12, Jesus says to them, starting in verse 23, Jesus answered and said, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. This might be a little confusing to us, but he's just saying, you know, when you drop a seed into the dirt, the seed disappears. There's no seed anymore. The seed dies. But what comes out of the seed is a plant that bears fruit. He who loves his life loses it. He who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now my soul has become troubled and what I say, Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. He's saying, I'm like a seed that's gonna go die But that is so worth it because it is what God wants and it will set the rest of you up for eternal life. And what am I supposed to do under this pressure, under the pain and under the reality of what I'm facing? Go to God and and refuse? This is why I'm here. And so he reveals his attitude to his disciples who really don't even understand what's going on. That there's a denseness to their understanding. They're like, you know, yeah, it's dangerous, but you know, come on, Jesus, everything will be okay. And you can tell by the way that they respond that they really don't have a sense for what Jesus is going through. So we look into John 13, starting in verse 1, it says, Now before the feast of Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. What is on Jesus' mind as he moves towards this unimaginable peril? It's them. It's his love for them, his relationships with them. And it's also God. 
his relationship with the Father, he also keeps in focus that this is not an eternal suffering that he's going to be facing. It's an unimaginable, incredible feat of personal fortitude that he's willing to go into this. But one of the things that really helps him is this. He knows that the Father is good, and he knows that this time he's going to get through it, and he's going to come out the other side. And that's a big part of what helps him understand the value of what he's doing. God is trustworthy, and he can endure this because he knows what the results will be. We read on it during this supper, the the last supper is starting, the devil having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him. Jesus is going to the cross to die for everyone, and it includes those who hate him. It includes those who are pretending to be close to him and who have already turned their hearts against them for self. It's incredible to think about that. That Jesus would humble himself and continue to serve people that he knows have claimed to be his friends, his followers, and he knows are going to betray him. And it really begins, I think, to cast a highlight on the difference between how we tend to operate and how God tends to operate. Because if we know that somebody is going to be out to get us, we at least shut them out. We block them off. Why? Because we tend to be willing to serve and help others, but we want to know that they are going to reciprocate. That they are going to do something for us and God is demonstrating here an incredible picture of unconditional love. How how can someone be like this? I mean, we all (coughs) want unconditional love. And we're all willing to give unconditional love as long as our conditions are met, right? That's kind of how we operate. And why do we operate this way? We do because we fear being a doormat. Isn't that what's in our heart? You want me to just give and give and give and have no expectations on getting anything back from anyone? I mean, it puts fear in my heart to think about living that way. I would have nothing. People would just take and take and take. You know, I've read The Giving Tree. I know how this works. I'd be the stump for the boy to sit on, you know. I don't know about you, but I read that book, and I'm like, I'd much rather be the boy than the stump. And it's revealing of something that's very broken within us. We want to give, but we need to make sure that we're not being used. Why is that? Why is being used such a horrifying thing? Because we interpret that as it means that I don't have value. But Jesus doesn't think this way. We want to know that we are respected, that we are appreciated. There's something fundamental in who we are that is desperately sick to know that we matter. And the way that people respond to us is probably the most important cue to us that we try to fill ourselves up and say, I matter because look at how people think about me. Look at how people appreciate me. 
We find it very difficult, this idea of unconditional love, true unconditional love, because we are fearful that our needs are not going to be taken care of. I'm just going to give and give and give and be used and trampled under feet, appreciated by no one, respected by no one, loved by no one until I have nothing left to give. And we know this and we interact with this because we live in a world where we intrinsically know everybody is in need. There's a lot of neediness out there. You know, do you really want to be the one person in a sea of people who's giving freely? And all these things, I think, you know, these seem like reasonable conditions, don't they? I want to make sure I'm not being used. I want to make sure that I'm being valued. And I want to make sure that my needs are being taken care of. That is just a rational, reasonable position to take. Except for when God's in the picture. The reality of an all-powerful creator God and the promises that he's made us changes this formulation significantly. If there is no God, then this makes sense. But if there is a God who's promised us eternal life, it begins to turn this entire formula on its head. We read in verse 3 that Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and he was going back to God. Jesus is about to do this incredible act. Before he goes to the cross, he's going to put on the garb of a slave and wash each of his disciples' feet. A ritual that is the lowest of, of low. It's the most menial task that he can, he, can, he can think of, that he can find in the context of this dinner that they're about to have. And he's about to demonstrate this to them. And so it's good to ask that question. How is he able to do this? And look, we're told right here, he knows that the Father has given all things into his hands. He does this knowing that he is God, that he lacks nothing, that his needs are taken care of, that he himself is significant, that he has value. He knows that he has value. He doesn't have that burning question, what if I do this and everybody thinks, you know, I'm a chump? He says, God has given me all things, and I've come from God for this purpose, And I'm going back to God to be glorified. There is no one in the room that Jesus is looking to for significance. Not one of the disciples is filling a hole in his heart. You know, am I loved? Do I matter? Yet he is loved and wants to be loved. But he doesn't need them to validate his insecurities, because he's supremely confident in who he is, where he's going, what his purpose is, and where he's come from. And he knows he's going back. With that kind of resource, with that kind of truth, with that kind of reality and security, he is able to step out and wash the feet of even Judas who would betray him. He knew that he was in God's hands and didn't have to depend on others. And the freedom 
that comes with that, the ability to love unconditionally that comes with that is remarkably demonstrated here. Verse 4, Jesus got up from the supper. He laid aside his garments and taking a towel, he girded himself. Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them down with a towel with which he was girded. You know, this is the age of animal transport. People wore sandals and dirt roads where horses and donkeys went where they went. And so the washing of the feet was this really uh, disgusting job. And he's washing their feet and wiping it off with the towel that he's wearing. So he came to Simon Peter and he said to him, and Simon said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Simon's like, I can't do this. You're, you're the master. You can't wash my feet. You're too good to wash my feet. And Jesus said to him, what I do, you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. I'm doing something, Peter, that's going to set a picture for you. And Peter said, never shall you wash my feet. I won't won't allow it. And he thinks he's being pious. He thinks he's being respectful. And Jesus says, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part in me. I'm doing this. And and Peter replied and said, then don't only wash my feet, but my hands and my head. The sanguine, you know, uh, give me a bath. Jesus said to him, he who is bathed only needs to wash his feet but is completely clean. You are clean, but not all of you. For he knew the one who was betraying him. And for this reason, he said, not all of you are clean. Imagine being Judas there. And Jesus is coming around with the bowl, getting ready to wash your feet, while also talking about he knows, he knows you, and he knows what you're, what you're about. So when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table, he said to them, do you know what I've done to you? which I kind of love the way he phrases this. Do you realize what I've just done to you? And I'm sure they were like, well, I'm guessing you're going to say more than just washing our feet. (laughs) What had Jesus done to them? Here he is in a time where anybody would be justified in being incredibly selfish, incredibly self-centered, who all of us would be looking for others to give us a little bit of comfort before we go and do this horrendous thing. Here he is in the midst, in the middle of this act of being betrayed. Parallel passages like Luke 22 also tell us it's at the same dinner where they're sitting around that a fight breaks out among the disciples about which one of them is the greatest. Can you imagine? You're sitting there getting ready to die for them Preparing, you know, you're going to go wash their feet. And they're like, "Uh, which one of us ranks second next to Jesus? What could be more human than that? They're thinking about themselves and their place in the pecking order. And they're ignoring that they've got God in their presence who is about to die for their sins. When Jesus says, do you know what I've done for you? What he's saying is, is, look, I've just set the bar. That's what I've done to you. I've just made it clear what it is and how far you should be willing to go for one another. He's about to die. He's the all-powerful creator God of the universe. And he just stooped to the lowest position 
the position of a slave, the lowest slave, and demonstrated for them what it means to be a leader. What it means in the eyes of God to serve others. And what he's saying is, is if I am God and I am willing to do this for you in the middle of these circumstances and the reality of what I'm facing, what is too menial for us? You know, there's a lot of things that we could probably come up with, you know, where it's like, I want to serve, but I want to serve in these areas. Somebody with fewer gifts than I can serve over here. I should give them opportunities over here and save the ones that, you know, that seem like a right fit for me. And what's wrought in that, what's, what's implicit in that is this idea that I have this certain level of value and there are things that are beneath me. And what Jesus just did was took the bottom out of that. The all-powerful creator God of the universe, the alpha and the omega, the one who sustains all things by the power of his will, just washed poop off your feet. What's... What's the bar? Should I then be worried about being trampled underfoot? Should I be worried about being a doormat? Should we be worried about how people will treat us when we serve them? We are. All of us here, you know, we do things and we serve and we get involved in our home groups, but we're also keeping a ledger, right? What could be more human than that? And just sit be there and be like, you know what? I've served these people a lot more than they've served me. I'm getting kind of upset. We tend to build these expectations. And Jesus says in verse 13, you call me teacher and Lord and you are right for so I am. If I then the Lord and the teacher wash your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. It's this radical picture. What did we say at the start? Who is God? What is he like? What is his character? What is his nature? God is a giver? of unconditional love. And we were created for the same purpose in his image to give unconditional love to others. And boy, does this burn, doesn't it? If you're not squirming in your seat a little bit, really thinking about, I'm talking about really loving others without expecting anything in return from anyone. Mmm, that sounds really good in theory. I would love to be loved like that by someone else. (laughs) But there's something deep in the machinations of who we are as a people. You know, one way of thinking about this, our culture is really predicated upon the concept of don't tread on me, right? That, you know, we have rights and we have values and I am not, I am a coiled rattlesnake ready to strike if you come and impose on me. 
And again, our rationality kicks in and says, well, I mean, you got to have some of that, right? If we just gave and gave and gave, we'd have nothing left for the people that we're responsible for. We have a very powerful undergirding belief in our culture that we are to be respected. We are to be valued. We have these inalienable rights. And in a very real way, the Bible totally agrees with that. The value of human life, according to God, is even higher. As image bearers, we are beautifully and wonderfully made and that We should look out and see our fellow man and realize these are immortal beings created in the image of God. How great it is. How blessed we are that God has made us in this way. But God also demonstrated through Jesus Christ who also had rights. Jesus had more rights He was the creator and author of all things. Sinless, perfect, eternal. Who chose to create us and gave us the ability to choose. Gave us free will. And what did we do? We rebelled and we created all the pain, all the suffering, all the injustice and turmoil that's in the world today. And God would have been well within his rights to say, do over. That didn't work. To stay where he was safe, where he was glorified, where he was worshipped, where he could experience no pain and no suffering. Well within his rights to do that. But what did he do? He suspended those rights. Because there was something that was more important to him than what he deserves. And it was relationship. He forsook his rights to come and take what we deserve, which was judgment. And then he turns around and says, John 15, 12, this is my commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this than to lay down his life for his friends. Do you get that? He loves unconditionally to the point of death and says, this is the most important thing that you can learn from me because this is what you were designed for as well. Oof. You know, I think we look at that and we think about that and we say, well, Jesus can do this, right? He's great. He's perfect. He's sinless, right? But us, I don't know if we can do this, but the Bible really goes out of its way to help us understand that all the things that allowed Jesus to be this way, God has also declared to be true about us. What was it that Jesus made him him able to do this? All things had been given unto him. He didn't need to worry in the big picture of eternity. Would his needs be met? Does he matter? Does he have value? Because he had been given all things. 
Romans 8, 16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. Jesus was able to do this because he knew that he would be taken care of, and God turns around and promises us the exact same promise. You will be taken care of. In the context of, this is as true for you as it is for Christ. Incredible promise. Imagine if we could apprehend and live this truth alone, knowing, yeah, we're going to suffer and you know, we're going to have a hard time here on earth. But as far as eternally, eternity comes, we've won at the game of life. We are set. There is no need. There is really nothing that can happen to us. We have won at the game of life. Jesus said, He had been sent by the Father. What enabled him to do this? He knew where he had come from and where he was going. Jesus in John 20 says, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I also send you. We also are sent on a mission. What's the mission? Jesus' mission. We have a purpose, we have a plan, there's a meaning. There's something that needs to be accomplished. And it's helping everyone understand the greatness of God's unconditional love and the meaning of Jesus' death on the cross. It's the same purpose, the same mission. Jesus knew he would return to the Father. Romans 8, 38 and 39, for I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor present things nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Jesus Christ our Lord. We are guaranteed as children of God, receivers of the free gift of salvation provided by Jesus Christ on the cross, that we can never lose what God has given us. And we will spend eternity with Him and Christ all time moving forward, no matter what happens to us here on earth. God has given us all the same things. And if we would grab hold of them, if we would believe them, it would change the way we view the world. So who wants to go first? I still think we wind up back there. We're like, oh, what an amazing vision. Imagine if everybody in the world lived this way. It would be heaven on earth. So as soon as somebody shows me they're willing to try, then I'm willing to try. But, uh, you know, if you only got one person living this way, I think it would go very badly for them. (laughs) But the reality is, is someone has gone first. God. That's what he's saying to them, isn't it? I have, do you, when he says, I love it. Do you know what I've just done to you? I've just destroyed all your excuses. Forever thinking that there is any task of service too low for you. That's what I've done. And I've just demonstrated for you. I went first. 
Romans 5, 8 through 10, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God doesn't say, okay, I'm going to come and I'm going to take the sin, the the wrath and the punishment that you deserve, and I'm going to cover it. I'm going to pay your debt before God. All I need is for you to start worshiping me. Do that and I will wipe out your debt. That's maybe how we would handle that. But we're not dealing with us, we're dealing with God. God comes and wipes out our debt. It says, are you willing, are you, are you willing to get on board? Will you come and join me in helping others understand and receive? God's not going to kick down the door of our heart. He knocks. But we have to open the door. He gave us that will. He gave us that choice. He died for the sins of all mankind for all time. But we have to receive. We have to accept that that applies to us, which requires, frankly, some real humility. I can't earn my way to God by being a good person. I have to accept that he paid my debt for me. And in the truth of that concept is the unexpected ability to begin to love others the same way. That's what he's talking about here. Look at how Jesus sums up this demonstration. He does all this. He explains it to him. What was the last verse we read in 17? If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. Do you notice the operation, order of operations here? This isn't just an idea that we should grab hold of and think, wow, isn't that cool? But this is something that we should put into action. And I don't think he's talking about necessarily the literal washing of each other's feet. I think he's talking about the lowest of the lowest menial things that we can do, the willingness to do this for others without condition, to serve, to meet the needs when we see them. And the blessing is not, we might read into that, this idea that God will be like, oh, you're doing great now, and I'm going to shower you know, wealth and success in your life. The blessing is actually the service. Do you see how he connects those things? The blessing is being whole, knowing who you are, that God has given you all things that you have come from him and that you are going back to him and that you matter and no matter what anyone says or anyone does or any human being, no matter what their opinion of you is, you are loved by God and are significant enough that he would come and die for you. And knowing that and putting that into action makes your life whole gives you that sense of, this is right. The idea of it, though, is terrifying. It's not intuitive. Intuition says, receive the blessing, receive the love, and reciprocate. God is saying, believe and act and discover the reality of this blessing. Go against your inner nature to love yourself 
and to only give to others conditionally. Go against that, move against that, and discover the reality of the truth that I am demonstrating before you. And become, become who it is that I created you to be. We rail against this because we don't want to be a doormat. We want to protect ourselves. We want to guard our rights. Yet, we desperately, all of us, desperately want somebody to accept us for who we are without judgment. Someone who will just look at us who we can really be open with. You know, we walk around with these facades, these pictures of who we want people to see us as. Because we think they won't accept us, they won't love us if they see what's really in our hearts. And so we live in a fake way with one another. And then we wonder why we feel alone. We wonder how come no one knows the real me because we're terrified of showing that. We're terrified that we're unlovable. And what Jesus is saying is, is this whole thing won't make sense unless you put it into practice. How do we do that? Well, of course, we need to receive his love. We need to become adopted children of God and co-heirs with Christ. We need to turn to him in a moment of faith and say, please, Lord, let Jesus' death on the cross apply to me. Come into my life and help me Despite all of my problems and all of my failings and all of my effort to be a good person, I accept that I have failed. And I ask you, Lord, to do it for me. That's critical. You can't do this without that understanding. And that's not to say that if you're not a Christian, you can't love and you can't love in powerful and meaningful ways. It's to say that you can't love this way without knowing that the promises that God has said about you are true, that you are taken care of in eternity. You have to have that promise and the power of God's Spirit to help you. We have to believe in His promises, and we have to know that we are taken care of. This enables us then to begin to see others through God's eyes. You know, when we look across the room, do we see people with messy lives and lots of mistakes and people who, you know, are broken and selfish and who want something from us? Or do we see eternal beings, image bearers of God's glory, who he thought were wonderful enough to die for and who we should be calling brothers and sisters? We also need a realistic assessment of self in order to do this. And it's the gospel that enables that to happen. I had a roommate in college who was the polar opposite of me. Very emotionally flat, you know, just uh, hard to connect with, hard for me. You know, and and, uh, I'm very generous with my emotions. (laughs) Especially the negative ones. Super generous with that. And so, you know, as an 18-year-old, I, I had a problem where, you know, I just, I wanted this guy to like me. And, you know, I was warm and, you know, inviting and, you know, just like, hmm. Just like, it was like, felt like talking to a brick wall. And I thought, okay, well, if he's not going to love me, I know I can make him hate me. 
I remember having that thought. Honestly, because here's what was wrapped up in it for me. What was wrapped up in it for me was I matter. And if my loving you can't move you, my hating you definitely will. Because I will not be ignored. And you know what was in his mind? I'm like 100% sure. Well, 99% sure. Was uh, you are not going to get that need met from me. We were in this standoff. You know, I remember saying things to him like, you know, uh, I, I judge my friends kind of like, if we were on a battlefield, who would I want to have my back? I remember saying to him, I wouldn't trust you for 10 seconds because I think you're a coward. I told you, I was generous with those emotions. <laughs> and he looked at me and he was like, yeah, you're probably right. I went to, you know, uh, we were in a, a, a Bible study, and I went to our home church leaders, and I was like, this guy, I hate him. I hate him. He won't treat me the way that I deserve. And my mentor, who was 20 years older than me in the Lord at that time, looked at me and said, what you deserve, what you deserve, Ryan, is hell. Now, there's a right way and a wrong way to say that. And he definitely did it the right way. But it, I mean, still, you're like, what? I mean, theologically, yes, I know that's true. But I don't deserve hell more than anyone else. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What we all deserve is eternal separation from God. None of us should be looking for what we deserve. All of us should be realizing how incredible it is that we don't get what we deserve. And how hypocritical it is to expect that others give us what we think we deserve. And it takes practice. It takes a lot of practice. This is a process. This is not something that you can, you can just do overnight. Okay, I'm going to wake up this morning and decide that all these promises of God are true. And I'm going to start living my life this way from now on. Philippians 1, 6, for I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. It begins and it goes on into eternity, but it doesn't stop. God doesn't stop. I remember talking to that same mentor as a young man saying, I just want to wish I could grow faster spiritually. And he said, um, God will go at your pace as fast as you want to go. It's you that's slowing him down. It's like, ah, <laughs> stupid wisdom. <laughs> that thought, though, of God will go in this process as fast as you will let him, but only you can slow him down. I can't tell you how true that it has been in my life experiences. God wants me to be fully spiritually mature. And the only thing holding me back is me. But in his grace and in his love, he is patient. And so we're all in process. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18, this is why we never give up. Though our bodies are dying, our spirits are being renewed every day. For our present troubles are small and won't last very long, yet they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them and will last forever. So we don't look at the troubles we can see now, rather we fix our gaze on things that cannot be seen. For the things we see now will soon be gone, but the things we cannot see will last forever. And that is, I guess, what I hope we take away this morning is a hope that there is a way to find real love, unconditional love. 
And as we set out in our relationships with one another, as we spend extra time with family today, as we go to work and we play with our kids and we do all the things that we do in life, allow us to turn to God in faith moment by moment and say, help me to do this and to be a giver without expecting anything back from them because I understand how much I've been given by you. And there you have John 13. God, we are just blown away by who you are. You are not like us. And you challenge us at the, at the, at the root of how we see the world with a noble vision that uh, is so compelling and intimidating at the same time. If we're honest, God, we know that we really don't even love our kids unconditionally the way that we want to, the way that we wish that we could. All of us wish that we could be more loving people, and yet we know that what you are providing for us here is a path to be loving like you are. And I just ask God that we can, we can meditate on that this week and that you'll give us opportunities to step out in faith against our intuition and love others without expecting anything in return. Amen. This study was recorded at Xenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.